And now, yes. coming to you live from the Gresham Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast. That was a lot less enthusiastic than your traditional introductions. Oh, Are you dude, tired? Have you had a bad week? I'm just older, man, and everything <laughs> aches. I've got bad knees. I mean, come on. I mean, on the All other right. hand, on the other hand, first of all, hello, but also, hello, Kelly Link's a genius. Kelly Link is okay. Let me back up a little bit. Um, yes, we knew that before. It doesn't take the MacArthur Foundation to make her that. The MacArthur Foundation itself has never called their fellowships genius grants. That's an invention of newspapers, which is probably a good thing for the MacArthur Foundation because nobody would have heard of all the good things they've been doing unless they had this, we are going to just pluck you out of obscurity in many cases. In some cases, they've given it to very famous people. Um, but for no reason. You can't apply for one. You can't. There's nothing you can do. I know people who've gotten them before. I know people who've recommended for them before, even though I'm not supposed to know that. And there's no way of gaming that system. You just yeah. have to be somebody who has got a lot of support and the and be fabulous. The anonymous, you have to you have to be fabulous, right? Exactly. And I mean, and, and the, there, I mean, it would have been what Kelly's the second person in in the genre to receive this award, right? Well, After Octavia Butler, I think I'm trying to remember if. I'm trying to remember if Lethem got one or um, – I'd have to look at the list. Yeah, actually. It doesn't really matter. It's, it's, there, there are other people related to the genre who, who've got it. But, but the two people who have self-identified as science fiction and fantasy writers to get it are Octavia and, and, and now Kelly. And Octavia's award was just astonishingly ahead of its time in terms of the way mainstream critics and scholars and academics viewed science fiction back then. Um, Kelly, to some extent – didn't surprise me at all. If you had asked me to list four or five people in the science fiction field today who are likely to get a MacArthur Award, she probably would have been at the top of my list. Oh, I think I, I don't think I saw a single response to it or to the news that wasn't, first of all, positive, but also wasn't kind of like, well, of course. Oh, well, yeah, of course we knew it. Of, co of course, um, Kelly Link should. If everyone's going to get one, it should be Kelly. I mean, she's fabulous and she's a wonderful writer and all those kind of things. So that was like a joyful thing in amongst this kind of weird, mixed up, shook up time we live in where everything seems to be horrible. That was good. People are looking for good news. And, uh, you know, the, the other interesting part of it is that culture goes on, literature goes on. Good movies are coming out. You know, yeah. there's neat stuff coming on television. We're going to see good omens next year. Uh, so far, civilization hasn't stopped dead in its tracks. No, no. Um, We've almost killed it, but it's not done yet. Well, it never did really depend on what the government did. I mean, the the arts – we've talked in the, in the past about how lively the 1980s were in science fiction. Science fiction was – revivified in, in the Reagan era in many ways, yeah. partly as as, as, as as a kind of response. And I think, are we beginning to see Trump-era fiction now? I think some to some extent, yeah. I um, think it's probably a little... Well, I mean, okay. I want to say it's a little early. There will be some bits and pieces of it. The thing is, though, the, the Trump era of stuff, which makes me shudder as, as a thing, is so much of a piece of a larger emotional and intellectual change in the world that it doesn't stand in isolation whatsoever I don't think I don't think you can say there's a response to Trump there's a response to the depressing grind of the evolution of climate change there's right. a response to the depressing grind of the evolution of civility in society a response to the depressing grind of the uh, delegitimization of institutions in society all these kind of things which you know, precede Trump, just precede Obama, frankly. Um, right. And, and, and maybe they're much more prominent now, or feel more prominent if you have your head in the bubble of social media. I think that's there, but I don't know that I would put it at Trump. And I, I guess what I, I... I know where you want to go, but I just want to say that... Um. Right now, I kind of feel you have to take joy and solace where you find it and True. you know like this 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 month the book that gave me the most joy 
was Tales from the Inner City by Sean Tan, which but is which is a just sumptuously sumptuously gorgeous book, right? You've got a mm-hmm. copy. You were just saying, right? I, I just got a copy uh, yesterday. Yeah, it's 140, 150 pages, I think, of short fiction, written by mm-hmm. by Sean, and, uh, accompanied by his wonderful art that integrates with it quite intimately in all sorts of ways, and it's superficially whims- whimsical. But what it is, I think, is it's a little statement of the triumph of the human spirit in almost every instance. That's what really on. Uh, mm underpins everything that, that he does. Um, it's in the background of Cicada, the other book that he had out this year. You know, mm-hmm. And it's just a wonderful, gorgeous book. And as I read it, you just feel better being in the world, even as you know, they announced that we've got 20 years left for the, for, before the, you know, the climate collapses and all this other kind of stuff. Uh, I, I, I will look forward to that because I'm looking forward to good things. I had an odd uh, a book I read this week, which I didn't even know for sure I was going to read. And it's, it's a collection of long stories by Michael Bishop. Um, oh, yes. Which is, he's, he's now, uh, and Michael Bishop is to me one of the most interesting writers of the last 30 years, uh, who has certainly established himself as, as a master of the form, but has never bec- become a, a household word in, in the way that I think he should have. I think for a while he was. I mean, he got the Nebula Award and so forth. Uh, he had what I still think is, and it's, it sounds like a joke to say the most brilliant baseball Southern Gothic Frankenstein novel, uh, but Brittle Innings is a brilliant novel. Uh, apparently, he's made an, uh, an arrangement with Fairwood Press to have his own input, imprint, Kudzu Planet Books. Mm-hmm. They've begun reprinting some of his novels. They reprinted a collection um, called The Sacerdotal Owl of his long stories. And one of the long stories, which he's revised, and this is an interesting thing for people who are collectors to know, that uh, apparently he's revising all of his works that are being reprinted, and sometimes major revisions, sometimes not. And one of the long stories in this, in fact, was published as his second novel, uh, with one of the things that I'm sure Bishop knows by now is you don't put titles on novels like and strange at Ekbatan the trees. Yeah. Which is a line from a... It, it makes perfect sense if you know the Archibald MacLeish poem and Andrew Marvell that it refers to, but there are so many levels down before that title makes any sense that when it was reprinted by Daw, it was retitled, apparently, at Don Wolheim's insistence, Beneath the Shattered Moons, which makes it... It's a John Carter adventure, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, well, yes, it does make it sound like that, which is definitely not where... Um, where, where Bishop writes, I mean, he's a marvelous, sensitive writer. His novella, Apartheid Superstrings and Mordecai Thabana, which he did for PS, for, for, good goodness, for, on blank, for Chris, Pulp House, for Pulp House books. Oh, Pulp House. In, in, yeah. in the 90s, was a phenomenal story. And he had that string of novels. I don't know, I mean, I, I can imagine why they stopped, but I mean, yes, there was, uh, the Brittle Innings, Count Geiger's Blues, a couple other books right. around then, and they were all fabulous books. And then he, I think he did a couple of mystery novels co-written with um, Paul DiFilippo, and then might have. sort of disappeared a little bit for a while. Yeah, obviously with I mean, family read, tragedy and that kind of thing. Well, there, there was the and, and there was a horrible thing that yeah. happened, of course, to his son, uh, which which became the name of one of our awards that we give out at ICFA now, the Jamie Bishop Award. But um, one of the things that's it's reassuring to see somebody that you remembered, and I've not reread any of his stuff lately until I picked up this book, intellectually very complex, beautiful sentence by sentence writing. It's the kind of it's a kind of writing that I suppose some people would call literary writing, but it's I I think of it as shapely writing. You just think this is somebody who is in command of his stuff, even when he's writing. Um, sort of down-home Georgia realism stories, which his last collection of stories was, yeah, which yeah. incidentally got him named Georgia Author of the Year, um, which I think is a good thing. It is a good thing. I mean, uh, It's a worthy well, and a deserved thing. Well, if I'm not mistaken, I think uh, Colson Whitehead was the New York State Author of the Year this year. So, so our people are taking over the country state by state. <laughs> Does that mean that Andy Duncan's going to be like the Alabama author of the year or something? Author or something? I'm not going to say anything about what I imagine the competition to be, but I think he probably should be. 
I'm all for that. And, um, um, the, the problem is then it gets dif- you know, difficult sort of going. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. Okay, yeah, it's a different thing. Okay, so well, the, the, you're hearing rain in the background, uh, so uh, and I can't be bothered closing the window, so we'll just have to sort of wear through it for a minute. So Sean, Penn, brilliant, and you want to talk Penn. about something, but I, I'm just going to like completely derail that conversation. Okay, fine. I want there to be a part of this podcast that when we write up the description actually has some coherency to it. Okay, so okay. say something we, coherent. Okay. <laughs> no, I didn't say I was going to do that. I was just going to ah. come up with a, sub- a subject that would appear coherent. As we sit here today, it is about two and a half weeks until the commencement of the 2018 World Fantasy Convention in Baltimore, where, mm-hmm. of course, we will see every single Cood Street podcast listener personally one-on-one and we'll have the finest of times. This is going to be good. And one thing we've never talked about, I don't think, I don't think back in the time we did, I think we skipped over it. Uh, and I don't know whether we have any specific point to make about it now, but we didn't really talk about the World Fantasy Ballot. Uh, and I'm assuming, f- first of all, as a starting point, that you will be attending the, the World Fantasy Awards banquet this year, Gary? I believe I will. I certainly believe I bought a ticket when I registered I better look. I better. Now you've got me paranoid. What if I didn't? Oh my God! I'll never get in. No, no, well, yeah. no, no. <laughs> no. What? You'll probably go off somewhere, have a better meal. Let's be honest. No, dis- no disrespect to banquet food, but almost anywhere else you're going to go is going to be a better meal. And then you will um, hear it. What, you could follow it on social media. What they've done in past World Fantasy Awards for people who who may not have banquet tickets is. People will simply, you're right, go out and have a meal and come in in time for the awards, which is always after the meal anyway. Yep. And sometimes stand in the back of the room, sometimes find seats where people have left. Anyway, so you were making a point about the World Fantasy Well, Ballot. I think we should talk about them a little bit because the both of the Life Achievement Award recipients, not winners, ah. I don't think you're, you're not a winner of one of these things, but the Life Achievement recipients will both be there. Uh, Elizabeth Walheim. Um, and Charles DeLint, which is great. Uh, Char- mm-hmm. Charles DeLint coming in from Canada, which at one point I, d- I think was uncertain if he would, given the times we live in. I think we're all a bit cautious about visiting right. your strange dark country now. Um, and then there's a wonderful sort of generational crop of writers who are involved, of artists, and that's going to be great. I mean, we can talk about individual nominations if you like, and I'm happy to do that, but since I've sprung this mm-hmm. on you, we can just talk generally that... You know, there's a great group of artists, and hopefully we may actually talk to some of them. I am, f- if you're not planning on going, people, and you can go. I'm fabulously excited about the art show. Many, mm-hmm. many major writers are going to have original art there. I, I, I almost wish that I, I had the time. I think I'm actually going to be uh, caught up somewhere else during the silent auction for the art. I actually, there are people whose art mm-hmm. I would love to own. Victor Nye is going to have original artwork in the uh, exhibit, and Omar Rayan, and Charles Vess, and Tom Kidd, and all these people. So it's going to be gorgeous. Just gorgeous. Oh, it'll be. Yeah, and the number of artists in attendance seems to be spectacular as well. Yeah, I think uh, Michael so Whalen's going to be there as well, and all kinds of people. Uh, Donato Giancola. I think it's just the part of the world it is that makes it easy for them to be there and to bring their art. So that's super interesting and tempting. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, mention at least briefly, we should talk about the Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, you're right, recipients, uh, because this is something which is always um, uh, uh, when you were a judge and when I was a judge and when I talked to other people this is always one of the most interesting discussions to have mm-hmm. uh, and here we have somebody who is uh, as, as well the one of the leaders of paperback publishing history in the United States certainly yes uh, who deserves to be no doubt deserves to be recognized a few years ago Betty Ballantyne received um, the Life Achievement Award. So I like to see publishers recognized. I like to see publishers who have brought so many books. As far as Charles DeLint, I take a, I, I have a certain pride in his finally getting here, which is a well-deserved award, in that, the, well, I managed the Crawford Awards for the ICFA. The very first Crawford Award given out went to Charles DeLint for what was his first, I think his first novel, Moonheart. It wasn't, no, it was like his second or third novel. Well, okay, so maybe maybe it wasn't Moonheart, but anyway, he received the first award we got. Sorry, so, sorry uh, you, you, you know you did, you didn't mean to. You stepped on my fandom, Gary, because I remember ooh. having to track down The Riddle of the Wren, which was his first published novel. Ah. 
Okay. Uh, and he'd also sort of semi-serialized some stuff in chat books that were almost no- novel, novel-like. Uh, and right. then I think Yarrow preceded Moonheart is my recollection. Uh, and Moonheart um, being the first of the major books that was set in Newford, his, his major cycle yeah. before he right. moved his creative focus out to Arizona. I think he and Terry Windling and a bunch of the art, you know, the creators who were associated with that era of evolving urban fantasy uh, developed a connection with rural Arizona and that yeah. sort of Native American spirituality and that crept into their work very strongly. Uh, I'm delighted to see him recognized. I don't, I've published him once, which was a, a pleasure. And mm. I have been a long, 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 long time reader and lover of his work. The first time I ever attended a world science fiction convention, the one book that I was chasing in the dealer's room, back when dealer's rooms were an actual thing, uh, was a book of his, which I actually failed to get because there was one copy in the entire dealer's room. And by fate, just by fate's chance, I turned right to go around the dealer's room rather than left. And by the time I got to you know the other side of the dealer's room, an hour later, it was gone, and that was that. He's also a terrific singer uh, and entertainer. Yes, yes, yes. And he, he and his wife have done. They, they they introduced me to a Canadian songwriter songwriter named Fred Eaglesmith, I believe. I've heard of uh, him. Yes. And uh, and, and uh, Peter Straub and I, we were at the, we were at a convention, and he was performing. That he and they were performing. Um, these songs. We went back and, and, and dug up the original Fred Eaglesmith recordings, which are very, very violent, uh, drug and alcohol fueled sort of things. And, and, and the lengths were better yeah, yeah. than than the original. So that was entertaining. And they do their own songs as well. So, so I think this is clearly well deserved. Uh, something else that uh, our Canadian friends will no doubt take pride in. Uh, and remind us about there's one Canadian friend who will remind us about this every chance he gets during the convention. Hi, Peter. We don't. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be a delight to see Peter when we get to. In fact, we have several Canadian friends. It will be a delight to see when we get to yes. Baltimore. Uh-huh. I'm already. I mean, like I'm already looking forward to that aspect of it enormously. Though I was super disappointed to hear that one of my favorite Canadians won't be there, who I thought was going to be there, Kelly Robson. Really? Yeah, she won't be able to make it, unfortunately. That's disappointing. Oh. But those other Canadians will hang with. I will say, looking at the ballot again, um, and feeling mm-hmm. it was sort of two weeks away, and having that great thing, because we didn't vote, we don't know. We get to just wait to find out, right? And I've, you know, I've got no advanced knowledge, but I, I've now read more of the award-nominated novels, and I feel even more impressed with the selection of novels that they have shortlisted, I think, it's a very, very fine shortlist. This is the first year uh, I was going to mention this to you when the when the ballot first appeared. This is the first year when, entirely on my own, having no idea who was going to be in the ballot, I'd read all but one of the novels on the ballot. Yeah, um, and and it's it's one of those years where, in any other year, I would want each of these to win, um, because there there are one, two, three, four, five novels on it that I really like. Wait, which one haven't you read? I have not read Fondalee's Jade City. Which I now have. Ah. Snap! And I really enjoyed it. It's a great read. Um, really, really... It's a, it's a well-written, entertaining, engaging book that match, matches kind of fantasy elements, uh, some or oriental elements, I guess you would call it, which probably put it very badly, uh-huh. but still. Uh, great stuff. Well worth reading. But the other books, I mean, Daryl Gregory's Spoonbenders, Dora Goss's The Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter, um, Spoonbenders, by, uh, by The Changing by Victor Laval, they're just great books. That's so right. I know you have, you, you, you have your crowning achievement that you want to win, don't you? Well, I, I am enormously impressed with the John Crowley novel. But here's the thing. I think that each of these novels uh, represents a, a different kind of fantasy, and this is one of the things that comes up with a uh, World Fantasy Award even more so than a world science fiction award, because science fiction at least has, in the minds of most readers, a working definition. Fantasy can be kind of uh, myth fantasy of, 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 a, of, of, of the sort that Ka Dar Oakley in The Ruins of Emer is. Um, it can be a, a more traditional uh, fantasy like The City of Brass, which I think is an excellent example of that. Dora Goss is is a Victorian, it's not steampunk, uh, 
but it's an alternate Victorian uh, literary fantasy. Uh, what at one point was termed bibliophancy. Bibliophancy. It's a fantasy about books. Fantasy using characters created from other books or descendants of characters yeah. created in other books. Daryl Gregory's novel is virtually a mainstream novel with with some spiritualism in it. So it's a Midwestern family saga, with a with a lot of uh, uh, a lot of stuff going for it. It, it, it could easily have been up uh, for awards that were not fantasy awards at all. Yeah. And Victor Lavalle's The Changeling is, I think, a very important way of redefining uh, the term urban fantasy, which I still want to be redefined back to what books like The Changeling are. That is, fantasies that take place in urban areas and are about urbanization and have people who live in cities acting as central characters in them. Lost and The Changeling is a very, it's a very, very New York novel. Look, I agree with you. I feel the same way. Buckley's Chance. It, it's Probably. just that, that that's, uh, You're not going to get to redefine urban fantasy now. Um, just have to go with it. So yeah, okay. So, all right. I I don't know that I obviously you have a strong favorite. I have several favorites. So I'm going to enjoy sitting in the audience and seeing who gets to walk up. I know that Fonda Lee will be there. I know Daryl Gregory will be there. I know John Crowley and Dora Goss will be there. I'm not sure about Victor Laval and S. A. Chakraborty, but we shall wait and see. It's going to be very interesting. If I have a favorite, I also have to say that uh, there isn't. This is one of those years in which I don't think I would be disappointed by anything on the list winning. True, true. I, I really there, don't there think it's a bad been novels, choice. There have been years in world fantasy and there have been years in Hugo Awards where I felt an undeserving book won. Um, or a book won because it was a popular return to form by a classic writer or something along those lines. Or somebody was given an award because of they had, because they had never gotten one. Uh, these are all novels that, as novels, it seems to me, uh, except for the Fonda Lee, which you suggest probably is deserving on its own terms. Oh, I look, think each I mean, of them is... The Fonda Lee is a good book, and it is definitely deserving. It was up for the Nebula, mm -hmm. as you may or may not recall. Uh -huh. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think it would be really inaccurate to suggest it's not a worthy... And I know you're not, but to suggest it's not I'm a not. worthy well, nominee. My point is that there, there isn't a... There, there isn't a a novel on the list that would cause me to stand up, fling my napkin to the ground, and leave in a huff. Yeah, I've never there, there are several that. that would have me on my feet applauding. Yeah, there would be. Absolutely. Now let's move on to novella, or as I like to call it, long fiction, at the World Fantasy uh -huh. Awards. And now there are nominees, I won't go through the details, but Simon Avery, Peter Beagle, Stephen Graham Jones, Ellen Clagis, and J.Y. Yang are all nominated. Mm. And... I have read them all. Well, no, everything is still except for the, the Simon Avery, which I've not got my hands on. And mm. they all are worthy nominees. I sincerely hope, for personal reasons, that Ellen Clages' Passing Strange is the winner. And I will be happy to admit that it's at least partially because I was the acquiring editor on it, and partially mm. because she's a dear friend, but also because I love the story. So, It's her best novella. It's uh, possibly, I think, her best adult fiction to date. Uh, of any sort, and now I'm saying that because I only I've only read one other on the list, um, which is which is the Peter Beagle in, in Calabria, which uh, is it's a good example of what Peter Beagle can do when he's not finding himself drawn back to familiar worlds. I mean, it, it is a unicorn story of sorts, but it's a it's a story about it's a very understated, graceful story that again. Uh, could have been nominated for awards without its supernatural content entirely. Um, but it's also uncharacteristic of Peter Beagle. People who want more and more and more of Schmendrick are going to find this is, like some of his other brilliant late short fiction, a different kind of thing. This is about Indeed. aging and, and loss. Um, the others um, I'm not sure uh, what to say about because I haven't read them. I've heard wonderful things about the Stephen Graham Jones mapping the interior. And from what else I've read by him, I suspect it probably is brilliant. Yeah. But that's all I have to go on. And as as you've said, Ellen Clages is a friend of this podcast. Who, um, well, a friend of these podcasters even. And a friend of our podcasters. So let's, let's, let's not pretend she's not. No. Okay, Fonda Lee is also up in short fiction. Yep. 
along with Rebecca Rowan Horse, uh, Natalia Theorodu, Theorido, I don't know that story at all. It's from Strange Theodore Horizons. Theorido, yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, Fran Wilde and Carolyn Joachim. Okay, I've read three of these, I think. Um, and you've probably read all of them because you I have, have read, read all of them, all even though it's been ever. it's been a while since I've read a couple of them. I admit, but yeah, and they're all very strong stories. They've all well, several of them are award nominees or award winners elsewhere, mm-hmm. and I would be I, I would not even question you know whilst I may have personally selected other stories as part of this group, I'm very happy with this group and. I don't even know what I want to win. I mean, uh, I, I have a very so, you know, strong soft spot for the Car- Carolyn Yoakum story, Carnival Nine. Uh-huh. I really, really like it, um, and I've, in, I, you know, I don't think enjoyed the word, but I, but I admire Fran Wilde's clear, clearly lettered and a mostly steady hand. But I would not be shocked if Welcome to Your Authentic Indian Experience TM by Rebecca mm-hmm. Roanhorse was the ultimate award winner on the afternoon. Which it's already, it's already won a Hugo Award, so it did, um, and, I think and maybe a Nebula Award too. Mm-hmm. All right, so that could make uh, could make the rounds. Yes, and then anthology, then uh-huh. <laughs> with, with a batch, new book, voices of fantasy from Peter Beagle and Jacob Weissman, uh, mm-hmm. Black Feathers, Dark Avian Tales by the multiple, multiple, multiple World Fantasy Award winning Ellen Datlow. The Book of Swords, edited by Garde de The Jin Falls in Love and Other Stories by Mavesh Murad and Jared Shirin, who just announced another fabulous-sounding anthology just yesterday, uh, the, the Other Hours or something, which you have to look out for, and The Best of Subterranean by my good pal William Schaefer, which is a, also a terrific book. Some great anthologies in there, Jack, uh, you know, right. Gary. I, I can't even begin to sort of pick one. I actually sort of think in some ways... Here's the thing, yeah. Uh, a couple of these are more or less overview anthologies of the sort that are meant to introduce you. For example, the the, the, the uh, Tachyon, the Jacob Weissman and Peter Beagle book, New Voices of Fantasy, is an attempt to give you an overview of new fantasy. The Best of Subterranean gives you an overview of the sorts of things that sub- – so, I mean, Subterranean has published phenomenal uh, short fiction over the years, and – this is going to have phenomenal stories in. Both of those are overview anthologies. Ellen Datlow's, I've not read the whole anthology, but I've read enough stories from it that are already getting separate play that I'm impressed by it. And I'm always impressed by Ellen's. Uh, I'm always impressed by Gardner's. The one that strikes me as different from the others here is the, the Gin Falls in Love and Other Stories. That looks to me like a unique kind of anthology. It's more... Um, original in concept than any of the other anthologies. Is that safe to say? Oh, very much so. I mean, look, uh, Gardner's book, for example, and it's a strong book with some great stories in it. Oh, yeah. Um, and in some ways may be the favorite in the category for various reasons. Um, well, yeah, obviously. It, it really is him, you know, Gardner, delivering you what he would himself would call core, it's core fantasy. It's classic fantasy. Updated, sure, but it is the classic heart of the genre stuff. Black Feathers, Dark Haven Tales is a spin on a horror idea and a good spin on it. The Gin uh-huh. Falls in Love is a whole other ball of wax. And it's one of, if, if not my favorite anthology of 2017, certainly um, one of them. Uh, and I'll just say here that just yesterday, Solaris and Mavish Morad and uh, Jared Shurin announced their new anthology, the Outcast Hours, mm-hmm. which will come out in February, which is a collection of stories about those who live at night, under neon and starlight, after the light of day. Huh. And it's really interesting, and it has original stories by Marina Warner and China Mievo and Francis Marina Harding. Marina Warner? Oh. oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Lauren Bucus, Levi Tidhar, Sylvia Miranda Garcia, a whole bunch of people. This is, I mean, I think they're all going to be, it's about two dozen stories, it's about a 400 page book, so probably 5,000 word stories. Um, it's it's going to be special, if it's, particularly if it's anywhere near the, the quality that um, the Gin Falls in Love and other stories is. And I'll say, back a, a long time ago, I called, this was my pick for the World Fantasy Award, when uh-huh. it made the ballot. I remember saying to Mavish on social media that I thought it was going to make the ballot. When it made the ballot, I said, I think it's going to win. 
I'm going to sit here now and say, I, I hope it wins. I mean, I love the work of the other people. I would love men, several of them to, 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 well, all of them to win. But that's the one I would pick. Well, that, that, that's, the, that's the burning book of the moment. That, that, I, I, the, I think it's, it, it suggests something new. It suggests something that most of us had not thought of. We've read some Jen stories over the years. Um, and there's no doubt that, for example, although I didn't read all the stories in the Book of Swords, I did read all of the Book of Magic, which is its companion Sort of the yes. sorcery part to go with the sword, and he he manages to get brilliant stuff from brilliant writers who we know are going to be brilliant. And it's not fair to say that a book won't win because it's a brilliant editor getting brilliant stories from brilliant writers that he knows. That's what Gardner did his whole career. So it's enormously impressive. And if it, that no one I think would be disappointed if that won. Um, oh no, no, no. But, but I, but I think you're right. I, th- I think that Jin Falls in Love is the only thing on the list that surprised me. Uh, the I- not, not that it was surprising to be on the list, but that the idea of the book surprised me. Oh, yeah. And look, it, it, it felt timely. It felt fresh. It felt smart and new. And, you know, look, it led directly in an absolute straight line to me acquiring a new novella for Tor.com that's going to come out next year. So. You know, it, it's absolutely integrated with with with, with the time, Gary. Well, so anyway, so that's that category collection. Collection. I'm gonna, I'm, okay. I'm going to affix a comment to this category and say, everybody who had a new collection published in 2018 or 2017 should be happy they uh-huh. didn't have it come out in 2019, because you got to feel only one person is going to win the major awards for collection in 2019. Oh, Ted Chang would be the person, wouldn't you think? Oh, Ted Chang has a new collection. Yeah. So they'll just. Get, we the, don't know. With two, with two new stories in it, Gary. Two new stories in it, but I don't know. Do you think that this will? Do you think there will be science fictional? We don't know with Ted. He can write hard science fiction stories, and he can write sort of mythological fantasy stories. He can write science fiction stories, except the science is ancient Babylonian myth. You don't know. It's, it's going to be a group of brilliant stories. My question is, are they going to be looking more like science fiction stories or more like fantasy stories or a mixture of both? They're just going to give them the, the award, Gary. Uh, probably. Uh, and actually, the, the, the thing is with, with Ted, I mean, in fairness, is that most of his stuff is I – mean, all of his stuff is science fiction. Just some of it looks occasionally it's- like it's not. It's all science fiction structurally and uh, and, and in terms of – the way it uses extrapolation. It uses extrapolation as um, a logical extension of given coordinates. And the given coordinates may not be what we consider to be science in our world. Yes. They may be fundamentalist. But once he has those coordinates, he he develops the story of science fiction. And he does that with more rigor than anybody I've ever seen. Other people have tried to do it, but uh, it, it seems to be something he's defined almost entirely on his own. But so the collection stories, again, our friend Ellen Clages, who deserves serious congratulations for having two books on one year's ballot, yep. which has been it's, – it's, it's happened a few times before, but not very often. We also have Carmen Maria Machado, which has pretty much won every other award anybody could even think of and some that nobody has ever heard of, uh, and is a deserving book. And it's, again, one of those books which has – helped erase the boundary, I think, between literary fiction and genre fiction. Well, and po- Carmen seems perfectly happy with that. Oh, She's yeah, happy I in both so. hands. Yes. So there's, there's, there's no doubt that that... The, the only thing you have to consider about that is that maybe people think it's just gotten all the awards it needs. You never know what judges think. That's and you true. shouldn't try to put thoughts in their minds. But well, well, one, sure. assume, well, well one assumes they've well, well and truly decided by now. Mm-hmm. It would be very disturbing for the people running the convention if, if the judges have not concluded their, their, their work by now. I would like to see a convention where the judges have to decide on a live panel in front of an audience. And no, I don't want to be no, one of the judges. No, 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 no. Because All you right. know what happens? Once that happened once, it can happen to you. And it would be a living nightmare. I thought once you were a judge, you didn't have to do one again. I thought it was like jury duty or something. You're excused for the rest of your life once you do it. Pretty much. Pretty much. Okay, good. So we've got Tim Powers Down and Out in Purgatory, yep. which is the collected stories. 
Uh, and it's only a few years since there was an earlier collected stories. Yes. Um, and there's and also there's, a variant edition with extra fiction in it. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a complicated thing. He's written very little short fiction, and uh, it's very good. He's mentioned several times that um, he finds it very difficult to write a short story, and he gets paid a lot more for writing a novel, so he likes to write novels. He's very open about that. Uh, so a short story by Tim Powers is a rare thing. I'm not sure that there's enough new material in this from his earlier collection uh, to make it seem like an entirely new book. Could be so. Could be so. Then there's Tender by Sophia Samatar, uh, which has some wonderful work in it. And uh, you know, the major is a novella, uh, mm-hmm. Tender itself, which is terrific. It's terrific. It's, 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 it, it reveals a lot more about her. Um, approach to science fiction, I suppose, than earlier stuff did. And, of course, this is a past world fantasy winner who's got her first collection of short stories. And this brilliant writer who's having a wonderful career, and I think it's a legitimate uh, contender, as is, of course, Jane Yolen, The Emerald Circus, which um, is doing something that she's done her whole career, but she seems to be revivifying this approach to fantasy uh, now that she's doing work with... Uh, Tachyon, and that is kind of reinventing and revisioning and subverting and doing all interesting things with traditional fairy tale material and traditional children's literature material. There's a wonderful story in that uh, collection about um, Hans Christian Andersen, for example. There's the, the Emerald Circus itself is a very interesting take on um, The Wizard of Oz, which is... Uh, in the same sort of semi-realistic mode as uh, the the Jeff Ryman novel was. But in other words, this is a book where a, a master of fantasy and fantastic poetry and fairy tales is interrogating the whole field in a very interesting and intellectual way. It's the sort of thing which I would really expect to see on ballots for the Mythopaic Society yeah, Awards yeah. as well. Uh, but certainly she's one of the greats of the field, and again, she was a Grandmaster or Life Achievement Award winner a few years ago, several years ago at this point, I believe. Yes, yes indeed. And then we come to Best Artist, and we're talking about all the wonderful art that's going to be on exhibit, mm-hmm. so that so that the you know, handful of people who do go to the convention can enjoy it, and everybody who's at home can feel jealous. But the nominees for, for Best Artist are Gregory Manchess, who is fabulous and who I'd love to mm-hmm. have work on some of my stuff, who did uh, Above the Timberline this year, Victor oh. Nye, uh, who is just a just a radiant artist who's done some great stuff. Omar Rayan, who also had a great book out this year, his uh, Goblin Market. Remus Staines and Fiona Staples, who's best known, I think, at least to me, for her mm-hmm. work on uh, Saga. So, yeah. so that's uh-huh. going to be interesting. And then this, the, 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 the two weird awards at, at World Fantasy, the Special Award Professional and Non-Professional. Yeah. Uh, which are really sort of the special award, better paid and less well paid, I think. And there was a definition for that at one point, which had to do with where your income came yeah, from. Yeah, 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 yeah. But how they knew that, I mean, I, I can understand. Know. I don't mind. Okay, to go back to Kelly Link for a minute, I really wouldn't mind the idea of the MacArthur Foundation spying on me for a couple of years, which is basically what they did to Kelly. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. They'll watch this stuff. They're fine. I don't like the idea of the World Fantasy Award spying on me to find out if most of my income comes from fantasy or from no. a day job. <laughs> anyway, the people shortlisted. Anyway. Harry Brockway, so, Patrick McGrath, and Daniel Olson for Writing a Madness. Charles mm-hmm. Coleman Finlay for editing the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, which is really great. He's been doing it for a handful mm-hmm. of years now. He's a very good yeah. The fabulous, wonderful, incredible Irene Gallo for her art direction mm-hmm. work at torbooksandtor.com, which she's also the assistant publisher of and primary creative driver for, uh, Greg Ketter for Dreamhaven Books, and Leslie Klinger for the, annota- the new annotated Franken- Frankenstein, not the old annotated Frankenstein. No, and since then, Leslie Klinger, I think, has done the annotated American Gods as well. Oh, um, go Leslie. So, go, you know, he's, he's, he's a nice guy. I, I, I had dinner with him once, and he's a lawyer in L.A., I believe, a very, yeah. you know... Who does this sort of thing as a hobby, and and, and he does a very good job of it. It's, it's, it's that those books uh, that that he's done have been models of um, what I would consider to be amateur scholarship 
amateur only in the sense that he's not a professional academic. Yeah. But he has all the rigor of the academic, just that his, his annotations are much more readable and enjoyable. And again, it's, it's the 200th anniversary of Frankenstein. Yeah. The thing about this category is that you're completely comparing apples and wing nuts. I mean, it's, oh, I know. Writers, it's, uh, editors, art directors, booksellers. I mean, Greg Hedders kept Dreamhaven books alive for decades during a time when individual science fiction and fantasy bookstores have had a hard time surviving. He deserves recognition for that. Irene Gallo for art direction, but, you know, she gets it for art direction, but she's not just an art director anymore. Oh, no, no. She's an editor and she's a publisher. Right. Um, so. The, so, yeah, it's complicated, but it's the art direction. And the art direction is very valid. I mean, Tor, Tor Books has, have a great, distinct personality. And actually, the work she's done specifically at Tor.com. And in I have to say, because I happen to have experience of it, in close... Uh, collaboration with other art directors and designers mm. at Tordacom, establishing a wonderful v- you know, visual presence for the website and for the, the novella line. One of the questions that comes up every year with this award um, is how much is the award a kind of life achievement award for things that you've done consistently over time, and how much is it an award for things that you specifically did in 2017. Now, I'm thinking about Greg Ketter again, who is a friend, a deserving person, a former judge of these awards, a, a, a long-time presence. Um, and one of the questions that I think the judges would ask is, does he deserve this because he's kept Dreamhaven books alive all these years, or does he deserve this because he kept Dreamhaven alive in 2017? And the same thing's true with, with, with FNSF. Are we looking at Charlie Finley's 2017 editing, or are we looking at his overall editing of the magazine? I would strongly suggest to you that we are, we should, well, they should be looking at 2017 tightly, closely, and discreetly. Um, I don't know if it's possible to do that. I mean, well, fair enough, but I mean, look, no, no, you can. I mean, like when you say for editing of the magazine of fantasy science fiction, there's 10 issues of the magazine of fantasy science fiction or whatever it is that came out. In right. 2017, and a similar number of issues of each of the other magazines and whatever else that are being edited around the place, you True. can make an assessment. So, I, I think it's a dual thing. And then there's the non-professionals for what, for what that's worth, which means which means primarily didn't make money at it, I guess. So Scott H. Andrews for Beneath Ceaseless Skies, which has evolved into mm-hmm. a wonderful adventure fantasy uh, magazine and fiction mm-hmm. website. Justina Ireland and Troy Wiggins for Fire magazine of black speculative fiction, which is terrific. I was just reading an issue of it yesterday. Khalida Muhammad Ali and uh, Jen R. Albert for Podcastle, which is a great source of uh, audio fiction, something that you and I are going to be mm-hmm. talking about, I guess, at the World Fantasy Convention. I guess Ray B. Russell and Rosalie Parker for Tartarus Press. They've been nominated before. And Lynn Thomas and Michael Damien Thomas for Uncanny Magazine, which won the Hugo just recently. And uh, Lynn uh, won the well, Hugo. Well, this is a, a, in terms of our, are we talking about the year? Uncanny Magazine seems to have had a terrific 2017. Yes, I think it, it did. And I think that's reflected in uh, the way it's being uh, recognized. I mean, there's always a little part of me that goes, how oh. do... Uncanny and Fire and Beneath Ceaseless Skies not belong in the same category as FNSF, but you could dance that particular dance all day long, and it's best just to go, oh, it'll be interesting to see what happens on the day. And our very, very best wishes, or my very best wishes at least, Gary, to every single nominee. I agree. A lot of these categories, the last two categories, I'm not terribly familiar with. uh, I've not seen the new annotated Frankenstein. I've seen reviews of it. Those do it out. I've not... I've not seen um, – uh, well, oh, there's one thing I do want to mention, um, and that is the Tartarus Press is the sort of thing that comes up – you're right. They've come up before. It's the sort of nominee that I suspect generally comes from judges because Tartarus Press is not widely available. M- a great many general readers haven't seen Tartarus Press books, and yet they've done some very important books, not only reprints, which I think they began doing, but 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 recent writers uh, – I think they did um, Nikki Solway's uh, novel, for example. They did indeed. Uh, yeah. And so the, the, it's, it's a very innovative press. They just don't get the publicity, I think, that that, that other small presses do. Partly because no. they publish fairly expensive editions, I think. Well, they, they, well, but they also publish e-book. 
Uh, they do well, publish yeah. some expensive limited edition, well, not limited editions, but expensive editions in yeah. smallish print runs, but that's small press. Uh, and they have published some great stuff here. They did publish Repetta by um, Nikki Salway, which won the uh, mm-hmm. Tip Tree, I think it was. Um, but they, they also published Angela Slatter and a whole bunch of other people. Right, exactly. Um, and my own, rec- my, my own experience as a World Fantasy Award judge uh, was that you got a very impressive box of books from Tartarus uh, you know, during the yeah. year. And I think it, it, when you see the output of a press synopsized like that in front of you, it makes a real impact. And you see that reflected in these nominations, which are obviously worthy. I think I'd been nominated more than once before because oh, I yeah. remember... I, I mean, I still have those. They're gorgeous oh, they books. Look. They produce absolutely good-looking books, so hmm. there's no question about that. So that's the World Fantasy Awards, Gary. Um, and that's the last awards we get to talk about until sometime next year. Uh, probably until Friday. I mean, you know how it is. I mean, I'm already thinking about 2019 far too much. So, yes, <laughs> for, for, But for a little while, you, you'll be sending around reminders for the, the Crawford Award nominations. We'll be starting all over again. We're looking at some new novels. There's some. This looks to be a good competitive year for that as well. This is a. Uh, hey, I've got a question. If you cancel mm-hmm. the, the Crawford Award, would all of the others just stop and not bother us? Is it you who calls it all? I wasn't going to tell you this until after we were off the air. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you could just I, keep your powder dry, Gary, you know. I have something like, I have something like fifteen people reading for the Crawford Award, or maybe it's more than that now. We just. Uh, I've added a couple of people every year, and people tend not to drop out. But it's uh, the interesting thing about this is that uh, partly because of having been on World Fantasy and uh, having been on Tip Tree and having been on way back when the Philip K. Dick Awards, um, we decided, and actually this was completely David Hartwell's idea, to come up with a fairly long list of people who are going to see what's coming out in fantasy and know what's coming out in fantasy and who can recommend it to each other. Um, so for people who want to submit their books for the Crawford Award, we don't take submissions. I'm sorry. We'll find your book if it looks like it's um, <laughs> to it. Yeah. So and I mean, hmm? well, uh, just to, just to bolster a minute, I was talking to somebody. We uh, added a, a, a new judge just last week, and I was explaining to her that by having a group of knowledgeable people, we were able to give an award, for example, uh, to Zen Show when her collection of short stories had only been published by a small press in Malaysia. Yeah, yeah. And it oh, turns no, out it was a very disturbing winner. It's and now Zen Cho, look what's happened to Zen Cho. She's now Zen Cho, come on. She's well, a, well wait, not, not, not to sound too absurd, she was Zen Cho before Gary. Oh, yeah. Well, okay, there's that. Hey, this segues really nicely into something that I was going to say. Uh, okay. It's not related to the whole discussion about World Fantasy Convention or how we're going to have a great time or how I don't think we're going to do a live podcast, but how I do think we're going to do this one panel about podcasting or something, which something is going to be about- great. Yeah. But Zen Cho, as you may have heard, has delivered her second novel, a, not a new novel, a standalone novel in the sequence that involves Sorcerer to the Crown. Mm-hmm. And I'm fabulously excited about it. And I have to say, I mean, not that this is particularly unusual, I'm super optimistic about 2019 for for books. There are all these great books I am coming too. along. The, the ones I'm seeing are very exciting so far. Uh, the one I'm reading right now is, well, this is not 2019, quite, it almost is. I'm reading uh, N.K. Jemison's first collection of short stories, How Long Till Black History Month. And it raises another interesting issue. No, is, uh, no. Black Future uh, Month, isn't it, Gary? Uh, to Black Future Month. Yeah, excuse me. It's it's a Janelle Monet thing, I understand, that goes back to Afrofuturism. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a very eclectic collection of stories that raises another issue of short story collections by people who are known very, very heavily as novelists. Um, and in the sense that some novelists issue short story collections that are familiar ways of returning to the fantasy or science fiction worlds they've invented. This is not, this is not what uh, Jemison is doing with this collection. Um, it's clearly very eclectic. There's some very interesting stories in it that are not connected at all to our worlds. And it's, it, it's an issue that I think is interesting because it comes up with Tim Powers, who's known entirely for novels, has very few short stories to speak of. Um, 
John Crowley, uh, brilliant novels, relatively thin uh, group of short stories. And the question which would be interesting to talk about when we get around to talking about this book is, why do we read short story collections by novelists when we love their fantasy worlds or we love their world building, and we're not going to see any of that in the short stories? Because we want to see what else is in their minds. Exactly. You want to see how how much variety these people have. You want to see how their imaginations work. In the case of Nora's book, which she says in the introduction, it's a way of seeing how they got to where they are. It's a way of kind of tracing a uh, kind of archaeology of their imagination. And I always think that's fascinating. It's one of the reasons I like. I mean, I, it's one of the reasons I like reading uh, the um, short story collection that uh, that Michael Bishop did. I enjoyed reading Priya Sharma's collection. Uh, the lead story of which, interestingly enough, came from that Ellen Datlow anthology, which is up for a World Fantasy Award about birds. Um, yes. I've got a collection of stories by Julie C. Day. It's a PS book, a PS publishing book. Mm-hmm. Um, I It's a writer I've never heard of before. She has very good recommendations from Jeffrey Ford and Nathan Ballingrid, both of whom are people I know that don't throw away blurbs irresponsibly and the stories okay. so far are very much uh, in keeping with uh, with what I expected so so I, th- I think we're seeing a kind of renaissance in short story collections as well we have Andy no, Duncan's we're no we're not that, that's nonsense so no not at all why not the, okay because stories. honestly I mean okay dear listeners we've been doing mm-hmm. this podcast since 2010 Every single year, there's a point where we go, this is a golden age for short story collections. Uh-huh. You know what? The field just just produces a lot of short fiction now, and they synopsize down to a lot of great short story collections all the time. Every year produces a really good handful of great short story collections. It's not remotely surprising or, or unexpected. It I guess, okay, it's much more that, unusual that. to find yourself looking at the awards that do give awards for best collection and not having a good batch to choose from. Mm. Um, even now, you look at this year, I mean, there's what, Abby Mayotis had her collection out. There's been mm-hmm. a whole bunch of other ones you were just talking about. It will not be hard to put together a super strong ballot. You and I are going to sit down, well, metaphorically, we'll sit down and hash out the, a list of collections to go onto the, the Locus Awards ballot for uh, the get- Locus Recommended list. So I don't okay. think, no. So there, well, you, I'll, I'll shoot the, you down. Uh, no, I, I, yes, there are always going to be good short story collections, and there are always going to be good collections from people we know are good short story writers. No one is going to be surprised when the Ted Chang collection comes out. Nobody is ever surprised at how brilliant the next Kelly Link collection is. She's amazingly consistent with that. Um, there's a collection this year from James Patrick Kelly. They're really good stories because we knew James Patrick Kelly could do really good stories. What excites me in a year like this is when I read a collection of stories by a writer who I might have read nothing by before at all. You mentioned Agne Otis is one, Julie Day is one, Priya Sharma is one, uh, where we're seeing. And a few years ago, we saw story collections like that from um, M. Rickert, for example, uh, discovering completely new writers, mostly on the basis of short fiction, doesn't happen to the extent that you say it happens every year. Maybe that just happens in my life. Okay, well, you know, you're much more attuned to short stories than I am. I realize <laughs> that you see every short story that comes out anywhere in the world that has anything remotely related well, to science fiction. Well, of course, I've got a big change coming there. We're not talked about it here. We're not going to talk about it in detail. But, of course, I, no. I will be disconnecting from reading short fantasy at the end of the year. We will just leave our listeners to parse out what that means, which they will do in about 30 seconds, by the way. I don't know. Um, what, what it does mean, actually, is that really you and I should talk. There's, there's some mechanical stuff. I mean, I'm going to be traveling. Uh, mm-hmm. There, Whilst we have had a, a run, a slightly interrupted run, of episodes of the Cood Street podcast available for your joy and edification and listening pleasure, um, should it let you do that, uh, there, probably, there will probably be an episode next week. And then there'll be a break of a week or two at least, because right. I will be in New York, and I'm not going to do a podcast when I'm in New York. I'm going to go and see Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen and some shows and hang out with my friends and all that. You didn't tell and me then, you were going to go see Billy Joel. Yeah, yeah, Madison Square Garden. 
Oh, jeez. So it's Billy Joel at Madison Square Garden. And then I'm seeing Waitress, and I'm seeing uh, Dear Evan Hansen, and I'm going to go see Bruce Springsteen on Broadway, and I'm hanging out with friends, and I'm all that kind of thing, so it's going to be good. going to share a, a place with Sean Williams and Garth Nix in uh, Soho for, for a few days. That and sounds then, great. It's going to be great. And then down to Baltimore, and honestly, whilst we might record episodes in Baltimore, we don't have any plans yet, but we may well do that. I don't know that we're going to actually put any episodes out. We'll have to decide that at that point, yeah. Uh, I I think it's going to be a wonderful conference. My plans are not nearly as interesting as yours, although I've discovered that the Chicago theater scene is doing no less than four different adaptations of Frankenstein between now and next spring, and we plan to see all of them. <laughs> well, I've just been actually debating what... I, I, I have the opportunity to add an extra couple of things to my New York State. So going to go see things, I, I respect that. Ah, okay. So I could sneak off and see... I actually could sneak off and see Come From Away, which is supposed to be great. Yeah. And Sean Williams and I were supposed to decide if we're going to go see Steely Dan as well. I know, and just last week I, I for I forwent, for gold, forwent. I guess forwent. I forwent, forwent the opportunity to see Stevie Nicks and Fleetwood Mac. That would have been an interesting thing. I I, I read some reports on this, and obviously for it's it's a tan- tangential sort of ramble at the end, but uh, about the new lineup with uh, Neil Finn from Crowded House and Mike mm-hmm. Mike what's his face from the the the. the the Heartbreakers, Tom Betty's backing band. Now that Lindsay Buckingham is suing Fleetwood Mac, ah, for loss of income, it is. So we don't know what we'll see any time in the near future. Anyway, um, so as we we just stretch desperately towards the finishing line of our hour, mm-hmm. we we can look forward to a fine convention, a break, a couple of week long break in the podcast, probably some new episodes. After that, quite possibly, though, some of that will depend on what we manage to record in uh, Baltimore because the last two months of 2018 are going to be very busy, Gary. Well, for you, maybe. I'm retired and simply enjoying my life as a occasional reviewer and bon vivant. Bon vivant. I'm, I'm, I'm that means just you drink wine, doesn't it? That's all that means. Pretty much, yeah. Bon I mean, vivant, no, no, I have... Life. Well, I actually got, I bought some, I bought a bottle of Glenmorangie that's been aged in sherry barrels or something like that. You know more about it than I do. <laughs> One of those things. It was on One sale. of them things. Some, some kind right. of thing. You bought a thing. Well done, you. No, the, the, the other thing which I think is, is, is worth mentioning is that there are things worth looking forward to on television in the next several months. I mean, certainly mm-hmm. the main one coming up in... 2019 will be Good Omens, which all of what I hear, mostly from Neil Gaiman's tweets, is that it's going to be terrific. The trailer um, looks good, yeah. Yeah, so 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 it looks to me like there are going to be some interesting things coming um, coming up in that area as well. There are lots. There are so many visual media things coming that it's insane. Whether well, it's the, the third season of Dead, we, mm, yeah. we should ask our listeners whether we've never talked about movies. We've never talked much about. TV programs we haven't talked about. Um, That's because we don't know anything about science. them. Well, I don't know anything about what, what I do talk about anyway. It I've got a PhD. I don't have to know what I'm talking about. I just you know, have initials after my name. So should, our, should we talk more about media? Should we talk more about uh, culture consumed, as our friends on Galactic Suburbium put it? Put it? I have no uh, idea. <laughs> I guess we'll we find def- out. We need advice. We can discuss it in Baltimore. I'm but, I'm, but, but we are I'm, really I'm rambling. Happy. No, no, tomorrow, tomorrow, or before the weekend is out, I expect to go see this film called First Man. Uh, oh yeah, that's that's we, great. It looks like a great movie. It looks like a movie that uses all the iconography of science fiction, except it's a historical movie. I mean, all 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 the imagery that goes into realistic blastoffs and the the, the kind of hyper realism that you get in war movies like Saving Private Ryan apparently is. <clears throat> In this movie, except the devices of science fiction are now being used to create historical fiction. Isn't that a little bit bizarre? A little, but I mean, you know, 
<laughs> the truth is, our probably our best space travel days are behind us. Um, at least the most exciting ones. Yeah. Okay. Well, on that cheery note, uh-huh. I'll talk to you next week, possibly in a less rambly way. And oh, I think we had had something to focus on this time. Around. And we will, you know, push forward. Yeah. And, and before you know it, we will be sitting together in Baltimore, in Maryland, and we will have ourselves a fine time. Until then, I guess we can say this has been episode. What is it? Five hundred and sixty-eight million. Episode fourteen hundred and thirty-five of the Cood Street Podcast. Yes. Bye. Bye. Uh,